KMTT, Ki Mitzion Tetzei Torah. You are listening to the Erev Shabbat program, Kafchet Mar Cheshvan, Erev Shabbat Kodesh, Parashat Toldot. You are with your host, Jonathan Snowbell. Shabbat is also Shabbat Mevarchim, Rosh Chodesh Kislev. <coughs> Rosh Chodesh Kislev is on Sunday. And that means soon we can smell in the air the burning olive oil, the latkes, the sufganiyot. Chagim are coming once again. Uh, I'd like to dedicate this program to my cousin, Hannah Ephraim, in Sharon, Massachusetts, who will be celebrating her bat mitzvah this weekend. Hopefully within uh, our time here on the Arab Shabbat program, we'll be able to also have a message for Hannah and for all the listeners as well. When we look at Parashat Toldot, <clears throat> it's a parashat that's filled with moral issues and moral dilemmas. And I don't want to go there today on this program. But I, I do want to ask the question of the bottom line. What happened? Of all the nevuah, the prophecy that Rivka received about the fate of her two children and the fight over the Bechorah, the birthright, and the fight over the Brachot, the blessing from Yitzchak, what happened? What is the bottom line? And if we look at things, we'll see that it's actually a little bit confusing. At the beginning of the parsha. When Rivka is having a difficult pregnancy and she goes to, either she goes to the Navi or she is the Neviah herself, as it seems from the Pshat, God tells Rivka, there are two nations in your womb and two nations will come out of you. Seemingly, the, the typical uh, explanation of is that the older one will work for will be a slave to the younger one. So again, we start off the parsha, and I stress the word seemingly, because towards the end we'll see a different interpretation. The, we start off the parsha with a prophecy in favor of Yaakov's supremacy over Esav. We go on in the parsha, Yaakov buys the birthright from Esav. Another point in favor of Yaakov. Further on in the Parsha, the climax perhaps of the Parsha, Yaakov, with the help of Rivka, manages to walk away with the supreme bracha from Yitzchak. He gets the... Yitzchak in his bracha says that Esav, his brother, will be bowing down to him. Not explicitly, he doesn't mention Esav. But he says... You'll be supreme over your brother. And the sons of your mother will bow down to you. So Yaakov seems to walk away with everything. He has this, the prophecy giving him supremacy. He has bought the birthright. And he manages to, whether kosher or not kosher, he manages to get the bracha from Yitzchak that says that his brother will bow down to him, and he will be the master over his brother. <clears throat> what is Yaakov's fate? Both 
on on a personal level for himself and on then for us, Am Yisrael, his children, on a historical level. One would expect that Yaakov would be supreme over his brother Esav and that Am Yisrael would be supreme over Edom, Esav's nation. So immediately Yaakov runs away. His first act of being supreme over his brother is the need to run away from his brother and live away from his father and mother and away from Eretz Yisrael for 20-something years. When he eventually comes back, he comes back, if I may say so, groveling to his brother Esav, bowing to him, his whole family bows down to him, he inundates him with presents, and perhaps, depending on how we read the Psukim in Parshat Vayishlach, which describes Yaakov's meeting with Esav 22 or 20-something years after our Parsha, he perhaps gives him the bracha back. He, he returns the blessing that he took from Esav, and he gives it back to him. Historically, if we look historically, is Am Yisrael master over Edom, Esav's nation? So in, the, in different time periods in the Tanakh, we can see that uh, indeed, um, from David's time, the nation of Am Yisrael is an empire which includes Edom, and Edom is subservient. And this goes up and down in different directions, but on the whole... We don't see Edom ruling over Am Yisrael in biblical times. And just for the record, for the Ibn Ezra, this is sufficient. This shows that the bracha and the nevuah came true. However, Chazal have a different take on matters because Chazal believe that Rome, and this has gone past Rome to the Western world as a whole, um, and the Galut that we're in now is called Galut Edom, according to Chazal. We, from the time of the Second Temple, when the kingdom in the land of Israel was subservient to Rome, and from then on till this point, Am Yisrael is under the ruling of Edom, Esav's descendants, and that is the situation. Perhaps the situation we're still in today. So whether the Western world are the descendants of Edom or not is not in my mind a relevant question. Though that's the question according to the Ibn Ezra. The Ibn Ezra thinks this is not important because they're not connected to Esav genetically. Chazal decided though that this last Galut that we're in, this last exile that we're in, is Galut Edom. It's the Galut of Esav. And from this time period, as I said, from, the, from sometime in the middle of the second temple period by Cheney, we are subservient to Edom. And then, this goes back to our question that we asked at the beginning, what happened? Historically then, according to Chazal, we have been subservient to Edom and under their foot, 
and under their supremacy for a much longer time period than we have been masters to them. So then I ask the question again, what happened? Where is the Nevuah Tarifka? Where is Yaakov's birthright? Where is Yaakov's bracha? It doesn't seem to have materialized, neither within his personal life, in his personal life he's very subservient to Esav, and if we don't accept the Ibn Ezra's interpretation of events, but we accept Chazal's approach, which is generally accepted, that we're in Galut Edom today, then we have been (coughs) subservient to Edom much more than they have to us. So what happened? I want to come to the same point from three different places today. I think the point here is extremely important. The Ran, in his drashot, the the second of his drashot, actually talk about Parshat Toldot, um, discusses an issue of prophecy in general. And this is similar to what the Rambam Maimonides writes about in one of his philosophical treaties, that we have a concept that a prophecy for good has to come true, and a prophecy for bad does not have to come true. We can repent, and the prophecy doesn't have to come true. For example... Yonah ben Amitai, the Haftarah of Yom Kippur, prophesied that the city would be destroyed in 40 days, but the people repented and there was no destruction. Was, that, was it a false prophecy? No. It was a true prophecy that was revoked. Why do true prophecies, why do good prophecies, pardon me, have to come true? Explains the Rambam that good prophecies have to come true so that there's somewhere that we can test a prophet. How do we know if prophets are telling the truth? If every prophet's prophecy can change, because if it's a good prophecy, we misbehaved and therefore it changed for the worse, and, uh, and vice versa, if it's a bad prophecy, we repented and, and the outcome was good. So then how do I know if any prophet's telling the truth? So Yirmiyahu Hanavi already tells us, and this is what the Ramam writes, that a good prophecy always has to come true. And if a good prophecy from a prophet does not come true, then we know the person is a false prophet. But, explains the Ran in his drashot, that you should know that really every nivuah, both a good nivuah and a bad nivuah, either of them can be revoked. However, for Am Yisrael, the whole nation, needing to know if their prophets are truth-tellers or not, they need a mechanism to tell if they're telling the truth. And therefore, from the time that there is a Jewish people, Am Yisrael, from Matan Torah, their prophecy, the good prophecy, has to come true, but a bad prophecy could be revoked if there is repentance. But essentially, says the Ran, both the good prophecy could be revoked if our behavior is not appropriate, and a bad prophecy could be revoked. There's nothing in the essential nature of prophecy which demands that the prophecy comes true. Therefore, says the Ran, a prophecy that predates Am Yisrael is therefore subject to the normal rules. A good prophecy can be revoked if 
the subject of the prophecy misbehaves, and a bad prophecy can be revoked if the subject of the prophecy repents. In this light, the Ibn Ezra explains the bracha of Yitzchak. The bracha of Yitzchak, in his eyes, has a status of a prophecy. Yitzchak's bracha to Yaakov was a prophecy. You shall be a master to your brother. And the sons of your mother will bow down to you. Is a prophecy for Yaakov. I prophesize to you that your brother Esav, of course not in so many words because he thought he was talking to Esav, that your, I prophesize to you your brother Esav will bow down to you, will be subservient to you. But, says the run, our sins have lessened the aim, the aim and end of this prophecy. It's true that through this prophecy we had the potential to be masters over Esav. For Esav to bow down to us. But our sins have taken away the potential of this prophecy. The prophecy, then, according to the Ran, is not as strong as our choices. We can have a prophecy that tells us that Esav will bow down to us, but our choice can override that. And if we're, we sin, we won't rule over Esav. Esav will rule over us. And that's how the Ran explains historically how for hundreds and thousands of years, a far longer period, we've, we are in Galut Edom far longer than Edom has been subservient to us. This brings us back to the beginning of the Parsha. Because I could always also write off Yitzchak's nevuah as a bracha. Bracha is not a nevuah, bracha is a wishing, a prayer, perhaps. It gives us a push in the right direction. But maybe a prophecy is much stronger than that. And when God says to Rivka, Verav Yavod Sayir, and the old one will work, will be subservient to the young one, then that has to come true. Let us look in Verav Yavod Sayir. So the Targum in Unculus, who. who who translates the Torah into Aramaic, it translates, The older one will be subservient to the younger one. The Radak is uncertain. The Raviyah Avod Sa'ir. He explains that it's unclear how we're supposed to read the sentence. There's this book that shows how using commas in different ways you can change the, the meaning of a word. Is the sentence say, Virav Ya'avod, pause, Sa'ir, the older one will work for the younger one? Or does it say, Virav, pause, Ya'avod Sa'ir, the older one, pause, colon, the younger one will work for him? And the Radak is not certain. What what is what is the correct read? And he brings an example from a pasuk in Yov, Avanim shachakumaim, rocks 
were depleted by water. Avanim shachakumayim. If we read it in normal Hebrew, avanim shachakumayim, it means that rocks depleted the water. Eroded is the correct word. Rocks eroded water. Rocks can erode water. Water erodes rocks. So we just have to read it in the reverse order. Avanim shachakumayim. You read it avanim colon shachakumayim. The rocks colon were eroded by water. Similarly, we could read the pasuk veravi avod sa'ir. The older will work for the younger, or the older, colon, the younger will work for him. There's two alternative reads here in the Psukim. And that's what the Radak says, is that it's unclear what is the correct read. By the way, according to the Ta'ameh HaMikra, the Rav Yavod Sayir, it should really be read, the Rav, colon, Yavod Sayir. The younger will work for the older one. The Radak has a brilliant message to say here. Why does the Torah throw out this confusing pasuk? And the bottom line is, says the Radak, is that the Nevuah is purposely being enigmatic. Sometimes the older one will be subservient to the younger as it was in the time of David. And sometimes, the younger will be subservient to the older, as it is today, as we are in Galut Edom. But the truth is, that the Radak was predated several hundred years already by Breshit Rabbah. I've seen around four versions of Breshit Rabbah, some of one in Torah Shlema from Rav Kasher we heard about last week, one from one quoted in the Chizkuni, and one I saw in the Shud Barilan as well. They all play on the same theme: Zachai Yaakov, Rav Yavod Seir. If Yaakov merits it. Merits it through his actions. The older will work for the younger. V'imlav, yavod atzair et harav. And if not, the younger will worship the older. Even according to Bereshit Rabbah, the Midrash, the Nivuah is telling us that our choice is the most important factor here. The Nebuah then wasn't giving us a clear direction as to who would worship who. The Nebuah was giving us a clear direction that these two nations are in a fulcrum, opposing each other. They can't live their lives separately. They will always be on two sides of that fulcrum. One will be up and one will be down. They are always uh, connected to each other. But, who will be on top and who will be on the bottom? Im Zachai Yaakov, he will be on top. But if not, Esav will be on top. Our choices are the biggest force in our lives. Perhaps. We'll talk a little bit more after we hear of Tavori, who will be 
telling us about another Gadol whose your side is coming up this week. This Shabbos, Parshas Toldos, Tavshin Samaches, is Shabbos Mevarchim for Chodesh Kislev, which will be on Sunday. The strange phenomena of the month of Kislev, in terms of whether it's one day Rosh Chodesh or two days Rosh Chodesh, has created a system this year that there is actually no day called Lamed Cheshvan, the 30th of Cheshvan. So, interestingly enough, the yard site of Harav Jolti, the former chief rabbi of Yishalayim, occurs on Lamed Cheshvan, which date does not occur at all this year. Poskim have, of course, decided which day should a person observe in the case where he has yard site on Lamed Cheshvan, but without going into the halachic discussion, we've decided to use the day of Lamed Cheshvan, although it's not on the calendar, as this week, m- discussing the life of Harav B'Tzalil Jolti. He was born in 1920 near Lomz in Poland. When he was seven, in 1927, his parents came on Aliyah to Eretz Yisrael, and he learned in the famous yeshivas of Yerushalayim, in Eitzchayim, and in Hebron. He was known as a major Eloi in those yeshivas, and there were a few people who had a, a select group of Chabura that were known to be the Eloim of Yerushalayim at that time. At a very young age, he was appointed to be Dayan in Tel Aviv, and later on, very shortly after, he was appointed to be the Day- Dayan in Yerushalayim, and eventually, in 1956, when he was only 36 years old, he became the Dayan in the Beidin Agadol of Eretz Yisrael, Beidin Agadol Yerushalayim. He was a Magadshir in many, many different places. For many years, he served as the Magadshir, the Rosh Kolel, of a unique Kolel that was found in Mossad Kuk. It was called Yad Maimon. And he said she went there for a num- before a number of illustrious students, some of whom became very famous act in their own rights. One of them became the chief rabbi, the Svadi chief rabbi, Rabakshi Doron. Others include uh, Rav Gidon Pearl, the Rav of Alon Shvut. Rav Shila Raphael was involved in that kolel, who was the Rav of Kiat Moshe, uh, Dayan in Yerushalayim. It was a, a, a very exclusive group of people learning in that Kolel, Rav Maimon was there, the Magad Shir. He eventually founded his own yeshiva, which he called Yad Aharon, and today there is a Kolel, Yad Aharon, which is known as the Kolel of Rav Jolti. His son-in-law and others are active in that Kolel. One of his sons-in-law is Rav Wilamowski, whom I remember from the days when he lived in America and used to enter the Shi'ur of Rav Soloveitchik, to hear the Shir in Yeshiva University. In 1977, he was officially crowned as the chief rabbi of Yerushalayim. He was known as a great orator, as a great magad shir. 
and his Svarim, Mishnas Yavitz, certainly made a great name for him. He wrote three volumes of Mishnas Yavitz, which are classics in the formulation of Shi'urim for the, a type of yeshiva, learning. His three Svarim are, one is an Arachayim, which probably consists of Shi'urim that he gave before Yamim Tovim all over. That volume is the largest of the three volumes and is itself a, a very important work. The other Svarim, one in Yeridaya and one in Choshemishpat, are more yeshivish type of Shi'urim that I, he probably gave in Kololim in different Shi'urim around the country. Many other of his Shi'urim have been printed in other places. For example, that Kola Yad Maimon that I mentioned earlier printed for many years a, an annual Sefer based on Talmud, a collection of, of Chidushim of their own Kolel, and of course it was always graced by the Shi'urim of Rav Jolti. Recently, a number of years ago, a Sefer came out in memory of Rav Jolti, a Sefer Hazikaron for Rav Jolti, in which there is a sizable section of a work of Rav Jolti on every single Sefer of the Mishnah Torah. They only chose one particular small piece about each Sefer, but that itself shows the breadth and depth of Rav Jolti's Lambdas. But I'd like to tell a story about Rav Jolti that I heard personally from the chief rabbi of Padis Chana, Harav Chaim Yaakov Levine, the son of Rabbi Levine. I noticed on the internet that this story has been told and retold, but the version that I'm going to say now is exactly what Rav Levine himself told me, and therefore I feel it is, the, it is much more accurate than whatever you can find somewhere else. One day in Padis Chana, Rav Levine was visited by Menachem Begin. I lived in Padis Chana at that time and served as a Ram in Midrashiat Noam. The vehicle of Menachem Begin was a government vehicle, a very fancy car that didn't usually come into a, a small village as Padis Chana was in those days. And of course it was the talk of the town. Why did Menachem Begin travel from Yerushalayim? At that time he was a minister in the government. He wasn't the prime minister, but he was a minister in the government. Why did he travel to Paris Chana? What did he come for? He was seen to visit the house of the rabbi, Rav Chaim Yaakov Levine. So I was on very good terms. I had the privilege of being very close to Rav Levine. And I went to speak to him. And I asked him, honestly, why did, uh, why did Benachem Begin come to visit him? And he told me that he was, came to offer him a position. And the background was as follows. Rav Tzvi Pesach Frank was once the Rav of Yerushalayim, a Godel accepted by everybody. From the day that he passed away, for many years Yerushalayim did not have a chief rabbi. It was difficult to find someone that everybody agreed on, that the government would offer the position and the religious people would be happy with that decision. The Rabbanim of Yerushalayim, Rosh Yeshiva, and the great Rabbanim, 
we're not satisfied by this lack of decision, and they decided to make their own move, as it were. And they had a meeting in Yerushalayim, and they decided to choose Rav Jolti as the chief rabbi of Yerushalayim. They appointed Rav Jolti, and they gave him a ktav, a document which proclaimed that in their name, Rav Jolti became the chief rabbi of Yerushalayim. Now, of course, the government of Israel could not come to peace with the decision that was made <coughs> by people other than the government. And therefore, they went to Rav Jolti and told Rav Jolti that it simply is not proper that a group, an ad hoc committee, as it were, would appoint a rabbi of Yerushalayim. This should be done through the government and it should be done officially. Rav Jolti said to them that he agreed with them. And he said that the, they want to force the government into appointing a chief rabbi, and naturally Rav Jolti was prepared to assume that position. The government said to Rav Jolti, but if they choose the candidate, they want to have freedom of choice, not to say that Rav Jolti was forced, it, for, forced upon them. And his answer was, that is true. I will step down if you appoint a chief rabbi of Shalayim. But he had one condition. The chief rabbi had to be someone that Rav Jolti himself would agree. They could not choose a chief rabbi and Rav Jolti would step down if he did not agree with their decision. They felt, of course, that this was some sort of a trick and Rav Jolti would not agree to anybody. So they mentioned names. I don't know how many, but they named... Rav Chaim Yaakov Levine, the chief rabbi of Parizchana, which was a small town, town at the time, and the son of Rabbi Levine, who was an outstanding Talmud Chacham, who was known in the rabbinic circles as a true Talmud Chacham, who was appropriate to be the son of his father. He was also a great tzaddik. He was very modest, lived a very modest type of life, and they said he would be fitting to be the chief rabbi of Yerushalayim. Rav Jolti agreed to that suggestion. The government then decided to put it into action. So they asked Menachem Begin, who obviously knew the Levine family very well, because of Rabbi Ari Levine's interest, involvement with Asirei Tzion, with the movement of the, those prisoners, with all the people that were fighting for the independence of Israel, and it's known that Levine, Rabbi Levine, was their father, Avi Ha'asirim, the father of, of them, the person who had contact with all these people. So they suggested that Menachem Begin, who was a personal friend of the family, should go to Paris Chana, offer the position to Rav Levine. And he did. And Rav Levine turned down that proposition he explained to me why he turned it down. He said when he was a little boy in Yerushalayim, he and his father used to go for walks in Yerushalayim. At night, one night, they passed the house of a lady who was knitting. Rabbi Levine said to the lady whom he knew, he said to her, whatever her name is, why are you knitting so late at night. Why don't you go to sleep? And her answer was, because she's an amana, she's a widow, and this is her parnasa. 
This is her livelihood. She must knit, she makes sweaters, and then she sells the sweaters and has money for her needs. So Rev. Levine said to her, so you'll finish it tomorrow. She said, no, no, she has to finish it early because she has a client for whom she's making that sweater and he'll pay right away for that sweater. And Rabari said, okay, so he'll pay it a few hours later. You'll do it a few hours later. He'll come a few hours later. She said, no, no, I need the money because I have to pay the malamed. My son goes to Cheder, and he, we have to pay schalimud, we have to pay the tuition in the Cheder for the Rebbe, and I must have the money on time. Rabbi said, I know the malamed, I know that person. I know the person who teaches your son. He's a very fine gentleman, a scholar. He certainly will not mind if you delay the payment a little bit. And she said to him, but maybe in his subconscious, without even being aware of it, maybe he'll treat my son differently if he thinks that he doesn't get his salary on time. And I want my son to have the best type of education that the Malamed should treat him at least the same as other people. Rivari was so impressed by this story, by what happened, that he gave the lady a bracha. And he said to her in the schus, in the merit of what you do, of raising your, ch- your children by yourself, we should, you should be privileged that your son should become a Tamid Chacham, a Tzaddik, well known within the world, he should be a Gadol B'Yisrael. Rav Levine continued, this was the mother of Rav Sholti. How could I possibly take a job which would conflict with the bracha of my father? My father's bracha is that Rav Sholti should be an Adam Gadol, be recognized by the world, and now he is recognized by the world. He was appointed chief rabbi of Yerushalayim. I cannot fight with my father's bracha. And he stepped down from the from the offer, and Rav Jolti then did become officially elected as the chief rabbi of Yerushalayim. Although we know very little about the background of Rav Jolti's family, obviously the tzidkus of his mother, this piety of his mother, certainly was a factor in his growth of being a Tamid Chacham. Rav Jolti's chidushim are quoted all over. This week, I happened to mention a point that Rav Jolti said in the laws of support for what, for wives in general. There, there is a halacha that in the case where a man does not marry his intended, within 12 months, he has to pay for her support. In the time of the Gemara, the Eresin was done very early, and the Nesuin could be done a year later. But if a person did not do the Nesuin within that year period, he was fined, and he had to pay the money. Rav Jolti, in a, in a tour de force, pointed out that this is looked at as an independent type of fine, rather than considered a marital obligation. He pointed out that the Rambam mentioned this halacha, of finding him before he even mentioned the halacha that a husband has to support his wife. You cannot say that this is considered a marital obligation unless you would say that a husband in general has to support his wife. 
So it's a beautiful example of Rav Jolti's Torah that he, with his sharp eye he saw the organization of the Rambam and, and, and deduced the halacha from the organizational system of the Rambam and proved his point. Rav Jolti's speeches, his elocution, were very great. He defended many times the halachic position of the of religious Jewry in front of non-religious Jews in the Knesset and other places as well. Unfortunately, Rav Jolti passed away at a rather young age and we did not have the zchus of his being chief rabbi of Yushalayim for a long time. He passed away, uh, 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 I don't remember the exact date, but at a fairly young age, and Chaval al Avdin Velomikshtakhin. It's a tragedy that we've lost people like that. We have find trouble having people to replace him. Thank you very much, Rav Tavori. It seems from what we said at the beginning of the program, before we sum up the program, that we've left everything very up in the air. Yaakov could be on top, Esav could be on top. There's one more thing that we have to point out. Yaakov does have a special relationship with God, a special relationship with Eretz Yisrael, and that has nothing to do with what we discussed earlier. The end of the parsha, when Yitzchak sends Yaakov away, he gives him a unique bracha. He knows who he is now. This is not a secret anymore. There's no more trickery. He's looking at Yaakov. He sees it's Yaakov. He's sending Yaakov away to get married. And he says, You should multiply and you should be a great nation. And he should give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your seed after you. To inherit, to inherit the land that you live in, that God gave to Abraham. Yaakov is still the chosen son. The chosen son means that he gets Eretz Yisrael. The chosen son that means that he has a special relationship with God eternally. It doesn't mean that he will always be supreme to Esav. Perhaps he will, perhaps he won't. We have here a mixture of two elements working together. We have a fixed element. Yaakov's greet with God. He is the chosen son. He will get Eretz Yisrael. He is the follower of Avraham Avinu. That's fixed. And we as Jews today are Jews. And we have that special relationship with God. What fate will we have each of us individually and as a nation, collectively? Do we have a prophecy that guarantees us supremacy over Edom? We do not. We have a prophecy that tells us that if we merit it, if our actions demand it, then we will also be supreme over Edom. We'll let everybody <clears throat> think about these two maybe hard to put together messages that we've discussed this week. And I wish everybody a Shabbat Shalom. 
and thank you for listening to the Arab Shabbat program.